Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity this morning that we have to be able to come and to serve you, Lord, and each other. We do that, Lord, and we praise you in, in our song, which we've done, Lord, in our study and in our prayer. Lord, I pray that this morning would be just an incredible time of um, fellowship with you in our hearts, in your word, um, and comfort uh, with uh, comfort, Lord, as we do that for each other here as well. Lord, we pray uh, and we give it all up to you this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, one day... Do you guys notice that like all of my jokes start with one day? Have, have you caught on? You can be prepared. One day, a pastor and his wife went to the mall. The pastor told his wife that he was meeting someone for coffee in the food court, and so she told him that she was just going to go and look around a little bit. Please don't buy any new clothes, he said, as he headed off to the food court. Well, she looked around for a bit, and then she saw a dress in a window, and she just had to have it. So she went in, and she bought it. When she met her husband at the food court, he saw the bag and he was very upset. And she explained that she wanted to just try it on. But when she did, it looked so good that the devil tempted her to buy it and she just couldn't resist. Her husband said, why didn't you do what the scriptures say and tell the devil, get behind me, Satan? She said, I did. And then he told me it looked even better from the back. You know, the devil is not one and done. You know this? The devil is not one and done. If he has tempted you in some way, I guarantee he will come back and try and get you that same way, especially if you gave in to that temptation that time. We see over and over again the devil coming in and trying to cause disruption in Jesus' ministry. He uses crowds of people that don't want him there, even after they see an amazing thing happen. He uses the Pharisees over in various ways. They come in and they try and divide the group we saw last week in a very controversial issue. Even his own disciples seem to be completely fixated on who is going to hold what position in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish, even though many times he said to them, I am coming to die and be crucified and yet they just don't want to accept that truth. We see it today in the message where he's very specific in the way it's going to happen, and they still don't want to accept that truth as truth. I tell you this to just beware. The devil will come in, and he will tempt you and tempt you and tempt you and tempt you, tempt you over and over and over again. And Dan just prayed that when we lose a brother or sister in the Lord and they go off to be in heaven, uh, as sad as we are, we understand that God has released that person from that daily temptation that the devil comes against you. And now they're in a place where there is no temptation to sin anymore. Amen? All right, so, you know, last week we saw that Jesus, um, he's headed back towards Jerusalem. And... Uh, for the last time. You know, this is a trip that he's probably made several times, but we know and he knows this is the last time. 
that he is going to go back into Jerusalem. Do you know that there's, uh, you've heard it in the Bible before, the Brook Kidron, that you have to cross over to get there? And, you know, they called that the Black Valley, the Black Valley, because what would happen is as they were slaughtering the lambs for sacrifice, the blood would run out of this drain and into the Brook Kidron and down, and the water was this, like, deep, kind of red, almost black water. Do you understand that as Jesus is passing over even this brook and he's looking down and seeing all this dark blood running down, he knows that that is or will be soon his own blood because that was the, the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice that he was looking at. Now he's going off to Jerusalem for the last time knowing that he will soon be shedding his blood in the same way, but not for every year, for once and for all and for everyone. Well, last week we saw this person that comes to Jesus, the, we know to be the rich young ruler, and he asked Jesus, how can I acquire what one can only receive through another's death? Well, that's how I put it. But what he said is, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus ultimately will tell the man that it's not about doing, it's about following him. In fact, Jesus tells the rich young ruler that the only way he will ever truly follow Jesus is if he lets go of the things that he values the most, his possessions and his wealth and his accomplishments, the things that his identity is based on, and follow Jesus. But ironically, his possessions possess him, and he can't let go of it. It says that he goes away sad. I think he goes away sad because he knows that he is still missing something that he was seeking, but he's unwilling to do what Jesus said was necessary. Imagine going to Jesus because you've realized you're missing something. Jesus has it. I want to get it. Jesus tells you how to get it, and you're unwilling to do it, and so you go away still missing that thing and knowing it, and that would make you sad. That should make you sad. Well, after hearing this and having Jesus tell them that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the disciples ask, whom then can be saved? This is a very interesting question from the disciples because they were neither rich nor rulers, yet I'm sure that they assumed that they were saved. Perhaps they thought that their work for Jesus was making up for the fact that they weren't rich. You see, if you were rich at this time, it was believed that God was blessing you. And if you were poor, it means that you were suffering some kind of curse from God. They, were, they weren't rich, yet they believed, I'm sure, that they were saved. And so maybe they thought that their work was making up for it. Like um, you could uh, invest in the heavenly layaway plan. I mean, I guess if you're like under 35, you probably don't know what layaway was. But when you went to Walmart or Kmart, you could buy something but not take it home and then make payments on it. And then once you'd paid it off, it was yours. And maybe they thought heaven was kind of like that. You could kind of work towards a heavenly layaway plan. But Jesus, they asked Jesus, if, if it's not because you're wealthy or because you can't, and you, and you can't work towards it. How can anyone be saved? And they were greatly confused, it said. Among themselves, they could not 
figure it out. With men, it's not possible. Verse 26, just look at it for a minute. It says that Jesus looked at them. That means he looked into them. In Greek it says he looked into them, which means he looked at them or into them with love and concern. And he says, even the greatest minds cannot figure their way into heaven. You get a room full of the smartest people on the planet and they cannot figure how to get into heaven because with men it's not possible. He says, only with God is it possible. The word with means very close, beside, or along with God. He's saying you can only do it very close with or along with God. Jesus says only with God or alongside God can someone transfer their identity from themselves and their possessions or their accomplishments to being identified with Jesus. Only with God. It's a miracle. Do you understand? It's a miracle. When we say, well, we don't see miracles these days. Every time somebody gets saved, it's a miracle. We kind of left off here, uh, verse 27, where Peter um, asked the question of Jesus. So let's pick up there. It's a 19, verse 27. It says, then Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Um, and so what Peter is, he's coming to Jesus. He's saying, we've left all and followed you. The, the idea left means he's, we've released. We, he says, we've released our grip on all that we had before you. We've let go of that. That's not us anymore. Now we're following you. And I'm wondering, have you done the same? Have I done the same? Have I released my grip on what I was to embrace what I now am? Or do I just keep dragging it around? Now, the Bible says that when you are saved, you accept Christ as your Savior, you're a new creation. And I believe that to be true. But am I also dragging around the old guy just in case? Or have I let him go? Have I released my identity in what that was? What the things that I used to identify or that believed identified me have I let those things go? And as I was writing these notes, and I, I kept on going back to the rich young ruler saying, well, he was rich, he had possessions, he had success, he had achievements, and that was where his identity was. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you weren't rich. Maybe you weren't uh, successful. Maybe you weren't. Maybe your identity was in your illness. Maybe your identity was in your circumstance. Maybe you said, well, uh, this is how it was. Like, I, I, I was always sick. I'm always sick. And that's what your identity is. And he says, you know what? That's not you either. Have you let go of that to follow me? Peter says, Lord, we've let go of everything that we were. It's all there. I don't know why it's here and not there, but it's here. We've let go of all of that. Now, when he says, what will we get? It's, it sounds a little bit like Peter to say something like, like what do we get? But really what he's saying um, in the Greek isn't, what will we get? But it's more like he's saying, Lord, we've left everything behind. And in the, in the little Greek, it says, what will become of us? So he's saying, we've left everything behind and followed you, Jesus. What will become of us? So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you, have, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Jesus says, Peter, because of your faithfulness here, you will be rewarded where it really counts. Do you see what he says? He goes, you are going to sit on the tribes in the regeneration. Peter, not here. Not here on earth. Not at this time. Not where it can be stolen from you. But where it really counts, Peter, is where you're going to receive this reward. Not where it can be stolen. Not where harsh or jealous words can uh, try to steal it away or diminish it. Not where you will feel tempted to lord it over those who you will lead. Not where you will sit, to, where you will strive to compare yourself to anyone else where it really counts. See, he says, Peter, you're going to be sitting on these thrones in a heavenly kingdom where there is no envy, there is no jealousy, there are no harsh words coming against you, where you're not going to feel tempted to, to lord it over. He says, where you will be perfect and the role will be perfect is where you will have this reward. But Peter, not here. But then he goes on, look, he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. It's pretty cool that Jesus says, and in addition, Peter, to you and those other guys, anyone who has done the same and chosen to follow me will also receive eternal life and a hundredfold. Of what? <laughs> A hundredfold of what? Have you ever asked yourself, or you just read be like, oh, a hundredfold, okay, next verse. <laughs> I think what he's saying is a hundredfold of what you've left behind in the sense that, look what it says. He says, anyone who's left children or brothers or sisters or mother or father or, or all of that, who's ever left that will receive it a hundredfold. I have found this to be true. When I became a Christian, guess what I got? a really big family, a lot more brothers and sisters, a few more mothers and fathers, seems to be a lot more children, a big family. Do you ever notice this? When you go on vacation someplace and you meet another Christian, don't you have like an immediate closeness? I was in, in Georgia one time on vacation and I just had a, a t-shirt on that said Team Jesus. And some guy on the street just goes, hey, we're on the same team. And I was like, hey, that was really cool. But you know, when you meet someone else who's a Christian and you have that in common, there's a closeness there. Now, okay, nothing else does that. If you meet another person who also really likes football, and maybe you even like the same football team, but that's the only thing you have in common, the only thing that you could talk about is football. But when you meet another Christian, you'll find that everything you talk about is permeated with Christ. Amen? And so your family grows. How many of you were born in this church? None of you. Well, nope, none of you. But how many of you would look at this church and say, this is a family. This is my family. He added that to you. He added that to you. I don't have this many brothers and sisters. But in the sense that God has added that to me, I do have that. Then Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I think that's a verse that we have all memorized. In some form, we've all memorized the first. Well, the first will be last and the last will be first. And it's usually when it comes to do with someone cutting in front of you in line. And you'll say, well, okay, go ahead. But you'll be last someday and I'll be first. It <laughs> 
You know what Jesus is actually saying there? It's very simple. It's just a statement where he says, the way things are done in heaven are not the way that things are done here. Later on, he's going to go on to explain that God will reward according to his own will, not according to what we think we deserve or what's fair. Things in heaven are done differently than things are done here. I'm actually glad for that. I mean, not all the time. I'm usually glad for it when it's, you know, good for me. But he says, the, thing, the way that you think things work here aren't the way that things will work in heaven. Now, he is going to go on now and use a parable to further illustrate this point. So I'm just going to read the whole thing, so bear with me. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. I'm just, just so you know, out early means about 6 a.m. in the morning, okay? Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. That means that he met with them and they negotiated with him how much he was going to pay them to work, and they agreed on a denarius, which is about a day's pay. Let's just call it 100 bucks, okay? So he agreed to pay them $100 to work the whole day. All right. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, the third hour, that's about 9 a.m. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour, which is about three, uh, and the ninth hour, uh, I'm sorry, six hours noon, the ninth hour is three, and he did likewise. So he keeps going back out and finding people that he could pay to go into his vineyard. And they would understand this at the time because at that time when your vineyard was ripe and when the grapes were ready to be picked, you got to do it right then because any little thing can ruin a crop. If those grapes are ready to be picked and then it rains too hard, it will split all the grapes and they'll be ruined. And so when it was time for harvest, you needed as many people as you could get out there into the field to be able to collect up that harvest. And so that's the parable that he's using right here. And then it says in verse 6, and about the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the harvest, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when, every, when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to a steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came were, um, who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. Ho, ho, ho. They got a whole day's pay for an hour. But when the first came, <clears throat> they supposed that they would receive more, and they like, likewise received each a denarius. Okay, now hold on a minute. <clears throat> they were told that they were going to get paid a denarius for working the entire day to which they had negotiated with the landowner. But then the landowner goes out and he starts hiring people throughout the day, some at 9, some at noon, some at 3, then at 5. And those guys at five, they only worked one hour, basically one hour that day. And so at the end of the day, the, the landowner calls the steward and he says, okay, now pay everybody and start with them guys from, the, from five o'clock that we hired an hour ago. And he gives them each a denarius. A, a, he gives them a day's pay for an hour's work. So the guys that were hired in the morning are like, oh, this is sweet. Because they only worked one hour and they got a denarius and we worked like 12 hours. So I imagine we're going to get like 
$1,200. But when they went to get paid, how much did they get? They got exactly what they asked for. They got a denarius, $100, to which they were very unhappy about. And they received it. They complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. All right. This parable often gets taken out of the context of where we are in Matthew and taught this way. God extends the offer for salvation to everybody. Some accept it when they're young and then serve God their whole life, and when they die, they go to heaven. And some people resist or never here until they're old or just before they die, and then they receive God just before they die, and they also get to go to heaven, regardless of the fact that they did not serve God their whole life, but literally on their deathbed maybe accepted Christ, um, and then they still got to go into heaven. Now, I believe that is a true concept, that the Bible does teach that we are saved by the grace of God and that there's no work that we can do to earn it or even make it better, but that it's a gift. No matter when you receive it, it's a gift. But that is not what this parable is about, okay? I believe that concept is true, but this parable within the context of this chapter isn't talking about salvation. This parable within the context, is talking about a right attitude in serving God and faithfulness and opportunity. In this parable, there are two kinds of laborers. There are the first ones who agreed on a contract for work, the first set of workers who said that we will work, but it's going to cost you a whole denarius or a whole day's pay. And then those who agreed to take whatever the landowner thought was right. That was everybody else. You see that in the scriptures. It says the first group, he, he agreed with them for this price. And everybody else, regardless of the time that they started to serve, he said, I will do what is right or trust me to do what is right. At the end of the day, even though the first group had, who had previously agreed on a, a one day's pay, when they saw that the guy's that only worked one hour, got the same. They thought they were going to get more. They were shocked when they received just one day's pay, and they were not happy, even though that is what they asked for. The landowner gave them exactly what they had asked him to give. I wonder if instead of striking a deal ahead of time of what they would get paid, if they just decided to wait and see and let the landowner do what was right if they would have received more. I wonder, you think? I don't know. Let's look at the landowner's response in verse 13. He says, Is, am I doing you wrong? Did you not agree with me? 
Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this man the same as you. Is it lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Jesus' response, remember, this is a parable. Jesus says, God blesses according to his will and his pleasure, not according to what we think we deserve or what we think is fair. But God, that's not fair. God, this isn't fair. Look what all they have. Look how they've been blessed. Look at the big church they have. It's not fair. You know what I think God says? Really? Not fair? Was it fair that Jesus had to leave the throne room of heaven, become poor for our sakes, and come to earth? Was that fair? Was it fair that he had to live an entire human life in a frail body, getting sick, stubbing your toe, stepping on you know, briars with your bare feet? Was, was any of that fair? Was it fair that he was betrayed, mocked, judged, scourged, and crucified? Was it fair that Jesus bore our sin on the cross as a result, felt the separation from his heavenly Father for the first time ever? Was that fair? No, none of it was fair. But all of it was according to the will of the Father. So what's the parable of the lesson then? If it's not about salvation and he's talking about serving God, what is the lesson? Well, the lesson is this. We don't serve because we want a reward. We serve him and know that he is infinitely generous and gracious and will always give us better than what we deserve. In fact, he's already done that, hasn't he? Because what did we deserve? The Bible says because of our sin, we deserved hell. But what has he given us to all who believe eternal life with him in heaven? That's more than enough. There's a secondary message here. It's a warning about fixing your eyes on what someone else is doing rather than being focused on what you've been called to do. Keep your eyes on Jesus lest you start to sink. You know that the, the, the story about Peter stepping out of the boat, keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus, and he was walking on the water, but when he took his eyes off of Jesus and started putting them on his circumstances, he started to sink. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in the way that he has called you to serve. If you start looking at everybody else and what they're doing or not doing, you will begin to sink into jealousy and envy and being discontent with what he's called you to do. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and don't worry about what this person is doing or that person is doing. Peter will say the same thing when Jesus will say to him after his resurrection, Peter, you follow me. And Peter, in a Peter way, looks back and says, what about that guy? Pointing to John. What about that guy? And Jesus says, don't worry about that guy. You follow me. Says the same thing. You're following me now. I'm going to call you to serve in this way. What about them? Don't worry about them. You keep your eyes fixed on me. You do what I've called you to do. And don't worry about them. A commentator I read wrote this, a complaining servant is not fully yielded to the master's will. Let's look at verse 16. So the last will be first and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. (laughs) Okay, so... This is a complicated verse. If you've taken this parable out of context and teach it on salvation, this is a challenging verse because it seems as though it's saying God's called many, but then out of the many he's called, he only chooses a few to be saved. 
Well, it's not what I believe. I believe that God says in his word that he desires that all men come to repentance and be saved. So how do I teach that verse? Well, if I'm teaching this parable in terms of salvation, I have a hard time with that. But if I'm teaching this parable within the context of serving the Lord the way he's called you to serve, it's not so hard. The verse has, uh, it says that the Lord calls many to serve him, but not everyone is faithful to that call. So God chooses to work with those who are faithful to respond. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I was to announce that we have this great, right here, in, in front of all of you, we have this great opportunity to go and serve the homeless. Now, many have been just called just now when I say that because you're all hearing me and, you're, and I'm saying, I'm calling to many of you, there's an opportunity to serve. Now, let's say on the day that we're going to do it, only six of you come out to help. Those six are the ones that I will choose to work with in that opportunity to serve. And that only makes sense because I'm not going to assign jobs to people who aren't here to do them. Nothing would get done. Many are called, it says, but few are chosen. God calls many people into service, but not everyone responds to it, and so he chooses to work with those who respond. Does that make sense? Do you understand that within the context of the chapter and the parable? He's talking about being faithful in the opportunities to serve. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Once again, we see Jesus trying to convey the message to his disciples, what is going to happen, but now he's getting extremely specific. Before he says, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be handed over or I'm going, to, I'm going to die. Now he's saying, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be crucified. First of all, that part. Does that tell you something? How aware was Jesus of what was going to happen to him? Very not only that he was going to die, but he knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to be unrightfully judged. He knew he was going to be scourged. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew every single step, and yet he never stopped walking towards the cross. He was in perfect obedience to the Father's will because of you and me. And then he, But he always says, and he will rise again. Do you understand that Jesus never talked about his own death without actually talking about also his resurrection? Turn over to Mark chapter 10, just for a second. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. I'm just going to read this. Read along with me. Behold, he, this is Jesus talking about this at the same time now. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. You know why I love this? Because he always takes it to that last and. He always takes it to the last end. It's like he's saying, he might be thinking of the verse, Psalm 30, I think verse 5, where it says that um, though the darkness may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. 
he says, yes, these things are going to happen. Yes, I'm going to be scourged, condemned and scourged and crucified. And on the third day, I will rise again. Well, still, the disciples don't get it. In, in other gospels, it says that they did not understand what it was that he was talking about. The fact is, they did not want this to be the case. And so because they didn't want it to, they were blocking it and saying, nope, nope, no, no, that's not true. That Jesus, I believe everything else you're saying, but that part I don't accept. And in fact, their, their minds are other places, really, aren't they? You know, I have this note right here, um, Isaiah 7, 9. Isaiah 7, 9 says that if you will not believe, you will never be fully established. Um, the word established means uh, assured. It says if you don't believe, you will never fully be assured or understand. And they did not fully believe Jesus when he was talking about his death and his resurrection. And if you don't fully believe, you will struggle with so many things. You will look in the Bible and say, well, I don't think that part's true, and I don't think that's part true. And I would, I would challenge you that if you come to a part in the Bible and you're like, well, I don't think that part's true, I would say that maybe you haven't really fully believed. Well, right around this time, we see that uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons come to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something of him. Um, the, the sons of Zebedee are John and James. <laughs> James and John, these are two of the disciples that have been walking around with Jesus for about three and a half years. Um, their mother, uh, I believe their mother is Salome, um, who might be Mary's sister, which means that James and John may also be Jesus' cousins. I, I can't confirm it 100%, but it would make sense. Well, we see that James and John come with their mother to Jesus. Now, Jesus has just talked about the cross, but James and John are more focused on the crowns that they might be able to get if they ask just the right way. And asking just the right way means getting our mommy to ask Jesus uh, for us. And so they're like, Mom, he'll listen to you. We've already been yelled at for arguing about this. So maybe if you ask, um, he'll do it. And so in another gospel, it says that she comes to Jesus and says, I want you to do what I ask of you. She's like, she's saying, just say yes before I say it. And he says, well, tell me what it is. And so she says, um, he says, what do you wish? And she says, um, grant that these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and on the other on, uh, the other on the left in your kingdom. Wow, that's bold. So the, the mother of James and John come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I just, you know, just this little thing. I just want this one, just one thing. Um, would you let my sons, James and John, sit on your right hand and your left when you come into your kingdom? And uh, I think James and John are like listening, but not, you know, not making eye contact with Jesus, feeling like this is awkward, but maybe it'll work. <laughs> and Jesus says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? He says this to James and John now. He turns away from their mother and he turns to them and he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup of suffering he talks about in the, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane? Are you able to drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized in the baptize, baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And they stand right up and, 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 they, and they say... Um, we are able. Yes, we are. In fact, they will. 
but they don't really know what it is that they're saying. You know that James will be like one of the first, if not the first disciple to be killed. He has his head cut off. John is maybe the only one of the disciples who doesn't uh, die in, in martyrdom, but not for lack of trying. They tried to boil him in oil, but he lived miraculously, and then spent his life in exile on the island of Patmos until, for some reason, he was released and sent back, where he then wrote um, several of the books that we read um, with his name, John and the three letters and Revelation. But they say, yes, we will be able to. And he said, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Jesus says, it's not up to me. This is up to the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. <laughs> Why? Because they hadn't thought of it first. They're like, oh, and get my mom to talk to Jesus. You see what they're, they're still struggling with position. They're like, I can't believe you guys asked. I should have asked first. They're struggling with this. They, they're wanting some kind of position. But Jesus hears all this. And he calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. He says, this is the world's way that they get into power and then they lord it over those whom they empower of. Remember when I said that when when Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you authority, I'm going to give you a place of judgment, but it's going to be where you are not thinking about lording it over your subjects. It's going to be in heaven where all of that is erased from your mind because here you can't handle it. He says in verse 26, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the ransom for many. And the idea is Jesus was saying, Look, I didn't come to be held up. I came to serve, not to be served. You know the, the word minister? You're familiar with the word minister? It means servant. That's all it means. Minister means servant. You know, minister has become a title nowadays where someone who is a minister, um, it has some kind of a, uh, the idea of like, well, this comes with special privileges. He's the minister. You know, he has a parking spot right by the door. He gets a flap. Someone gave me one of those one time, like oh, I could park anywhere I wanted to. I just had to flip down the, thing, like if you go to the hospital or something, I was like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I, I, I'll park over there. Minister, the idea is like, we're here to serve. I'm here to serve, not to be, you know, lifted up and marched out of the stadium like some kind of a champion. Jesus says, I came to serve. Imagine if we all had this attitude of serving one another before we served ourselves. Imagine we had that kind of attitude on a Sunday potluck day. No, but here's the problem, Terry, is that we would never get through the thing because everyone would say, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. And no one would ever get any food. But imagine if we lived with the attitude of servanthood. I'm going to serve you. You know what happens is we no longer get 
offended when someone doesn't treat us right. Because we're not looking to be served, we're looking to serve. Jesus says, I am the example of that for you. I came, if anyone should have been served, it was Jesus, but he said, I came to serve you. Literally at the, at the last meal, takes out a basin and a towel and washes all of the disciples' feet. And he says, as I have done this for you, you now go and do it for everybody else. Now, they leave there. And they went out of Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, they went out of Jericho and a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road when they had heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Now this says two blind men. We know at least one of them from Mark's gospel was blind Bartimaeus. That's how we know him, blind Bartimaeus. He was a guy was sitting there. They heard a big crowd coming by and they start saying, what's going on? What is all the noise? Because they can't see, they're blind. And so someone says, oh, it's Jesus. He's coming through. And they, they, this is what they know. Here's our one shot. This is our one shot at this because um, I've never seen him before, I guess. Never. <laughs> um, I've never been where he's been before, but now I am. This is my one shot. And they call out to him, uh, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And you know what the crowd does? They're like, come on, yeah, come, let's take you to Jesus. No, they don't. They say, shh, quiet, blind guys. He's too busy for you. You know what they do? They cry out even louder because you know what? They're like, ain't no crowd and no what anybody says is going to keep me from getting to Jesus. And I would say, same for you guys. Don't let anybody say something or keep you away from Jesus. Even if they come to you and they say something like, you believe that Bible? That's not true. That's just written by a bunch of old white guys. A bunch of old white guys. That's really smart. And then you start thinking, ah, and then you start doubting a little bit. And maybe you stop reading because you're like, maybe it is just a bunch of made-up stories. Don't let anyone say anything that's going to keep you from Jesus. These guys were being kept physically back by a crowd, a great multitude, and they yelled out even louder. And what does it say Jesus did? He stood still. He stopped. Now in the other gospel, (laughs) it says that Jesus said, let them come. And now the crowd was like, yay, come on, he's calling you. And like they completely turned around. Like just a second ago, they were like, shh, shut up. And now Jesus is like, let them come. And they're like, woohoo, hey, you won the lottery. Come on. And they're all like, and it says that they got up and it says that they threw off their garments, right? Now, this is really important to understand. The word garment in Greek is cloak, right? And cloak meant the coat that you wore and it was very valuable. In fact, for these guys, I'm sure it was the only thing of value that they had. You could use your cloak to secure a loan. It was collateral. You could give it to someone and say, look, I'll give you my cloak if you give me this money as a promise to pay it back. But it was so important that if you took a coat as collateral, you had to give it back to the guy at the end of every single day because that was the thing that kept him from freezing in the middle of the night. This is the garment that these guys threw off to go to Jesus. It's interesting to me because what that says to me is they had 
100% faith that Jesus was going to give them back their sight because why would they throw off their cloak if they knew they were going to have to come back and search for it blind? How does a blind guy find his cloak that he just threw off? He doesn't. They knew they weren't going to have to search around blind because they had faith that Jesus was going to do what it is that they asked him to do. And so they come to Jesus, and look what Jesus says. What do you want me to do for you? (laughs) Two blind guys come to Jesus, and Jesus says, and what would you like? And they say, just a hug would be good. (laughs) And Jesus wants them to state what it is that they want of him. Look what they say. They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. I really love the way that Matthew writes this down because these blind guys come to Jesus and they say, Lord, we want our eyes to be open." Now, I know that what they were saying was, we want to see again. But Jesus says, you know what? I am going to open your eyes. Because what happens is he gives them back their sight. By the way, all he does is touch them, right? We see, we see in the gospel Jesus healing blind people. He does it differently almost every time. One guy, he spits on the ground and makes mud and then rubs it on the guy's face and then says, now go and wash off in this well. And the guy's like, <laughs> I'm sure the guy's like, how is this helping? <laughs> but he gets there and he washes off. He can see another guy, he touches him and the man says, well, I can see men like trees. And so Jesus touches him again and completely restored 100%. He does it different all the time. Why? Because if he did it the same way, every single time we'd be like, got it figured out. I got God figured out. This is how he heals blind people. You say this, you touch that, you do this, healed. And he says, no, it's not about the way I did it. It's about who I am. He says to this man, how he just touches them. And their vision comes back. He opens their eyes And it says Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Now, this is the thing. He did give them back their sight, but he opened their eyes just like they asked. He actually opened their eyes to who he was because it says that they followed him after. Do you know he healed plenty of people who never followed him after that? These guys were healed. Their eyes were opened to who he was, and they followed him. The, I, I love this idea of, we know, we know at least one of their names, Blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus, that's what we call him. What did they call him after that? Bartimaeus, I guess. <laughs> we, we know that they came and they left everything behind, okay? They left everything that they had behind and they came to Jesus. This was probably their only possession, the only thing that they had of value, Number one, this demonstrates complete faith. I already talked about that. That Jesus would restore their sight. If it didn't work, how were they going to find their cloak again? But more importantly, they left behind the thing of value that confirmed their identity, and they followed Jesus. After he received his sight, they couldn't call blind Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. Anymore, wouldn't make sense. Like, hey, who's that guy with Jesus? And you said, well, that's blind Bartimaeus. And they might say, well, why do you call him blind Bartimaeus? I guess he's not. The thing is, 
his identity was in his condition, and he left that behind when he went to Jesus and had his eyes opened up and followed him. Incidentally, Bartimaeus did exactly what the rich young ruler could not do. Blind Bartimaeus left the thing that he valued most and went and followed Jesus. The rich young ruler was told to do the same thing, and he couldn't do it. Are you ready? Are you ready to let go of who you were and embrace who Jesus says you are? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much today for your word, for the things that you've spoken to us, Lord, the things that you've encouraged us in, Lord, the things that you have maybe challenged us with this morning. Lord, I pray that if any of us are still dragging behind the old person that we were, whether it's because we're too attached to our wealth and successes or too attached to our circumstances, good or bad, Lord, I pray that you would help us to release our hold on that and embrace who you say we are now and to follow you. Lord, I pray that when we do answer that call to serve, and I pray that we do it often, Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you and not be distracted by what someone is or isn't doing. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And Lord, help us to remember to have a heart of a servant. We thank you so much, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.